And as the director of the centre, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here this afternoon. In the first hour, we've had discussion on uh, astrobiology, and we now move to law uh, and religious freedom, which reflects the range of topics that we as a centre um, engage with. We are not a specialist centre in any one uh, sphere of interdisciplinary work. Our mission is to bring the discipline of theology in its various traditions into dialogue and collaboration with the sciences and humanities in new and emerging areas uh, of interdisciplinary interest and research, but also in what we call at the center in areas of global concern. And this is certainly one of them in the second hour, the whole question of law and religious freedom. We conducted it, uh, an interdisciplinary inquiry on this theme in 2014-15 at the center with a group of legal scholars uh, and philosophers and ethicists, theologians and religion scholars. And we're honored this afternoon uh, to have two of them with us. Uh, John Burgess is professor of theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. And we have his book that he wrote very, with great dedication and discipline during the year in residence, Holy Rus, uh, on the Russian Orthodox Church and, and the political context for uh, the church's life in the post-Soviet era. And we're honored to have as our distinguished respondent, Sean Casey, who is the director of the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University, and formerly US Special Representative on Religion and Global Affairs in the State Department. <coughs> and a biblical word, Ichabod, the glory has departed, comes to mind, uh, Sean. Um, and then I'm delighted to welcome uh, a second scholar from our work in residence in that inquiry. Hans Martin Tenapel is professor of law in the law school at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. And uh, we're delighted that uh, another excellent monograph that came out of that year, work done on that year, Hans Martin's book on constitutional law, democracy and religious freedom. And again, very distinguished respondent, uh, to um, Hans Martin's book and the questions it raises. Um, we're delighted to welcome Professor Kathy Caveney from Boston College, who is both professor in law and theology in both faculties um, at Boston College. Both Sean and Kathy participated in that year uh, as respondents and uh, uh, speakers, presenters, during the series of conversations we had with the wider circle of scholars uh, along with our resident group. So Sean McCarthy, we're welcoming you back as dear friends of the center and we're honored that you're here this afternoon. Our format is very simple. We're going to ask first John um, to give a sketch of his book uh, for those uh, who haven't yet encountered it and soon will. And then Sean will raise some questions for him in the reading of it. And then we'll turn to Hans Martin who will similarly introduce his book and Kathy will raise some questions. We're going to do the two together and then open up for some dialogue in the panel, uh, conversation with you. And then Robin Lovin, who until recently was our <coughs> William H. Scheide Senior Fellow in Theology at the Center uh, and leader in that inquiry on law and religious freedom, will give a closing reflection on the conversation. Can we welcome our panel and then John will speak. Thanks very much, 
Will, thanks to CTI for being such a great host, such a great place to do this kind of scholarship. So this is the book, and I have two minutes to talk about 13 years of work. <laughs> about 15 years ago, I began to get very curious about what was happening with religion after the collapse of communism in the former Soviet Union. And so at age 48, I began learning the Russian language. And that's another story, but that led eventually to a sabbatical in St. Petersburg and then uh, a second sabbatical in Moscow. What I was investigating during that time was how does religion come back to life after it's been forcibly repressed for almost 75 years? Can it come back to life and in what form? And to my astonishment, I discovered that the Orthodox Church, the principal form of religiosity in Russia, was very ambitiously pursuing a project of re-Christianizing, re-Orthodoxizing Russia. Four areas that I looked at in particular, the promotion of religious education, also in the public schools, church social work, often cutting-edge ministries for the new Russia, the commemoration of the martyrs, those who were killed for their faith in the 20th century, and then fourth of all, the reconstitution of parish life. The book investigates each of those areas and then asks, what has been the price that the church has paid to advance those ministries in the context of an authoritarian regime under Vladimir Putin? What is the trade-off? What is the price that the church pays to have that space? And how does that then relate to the question of religious freedom? What happens to religious minorities? What happens to those Russians who tell the story of Russia not as orthodoxy and not as holy ruse? Where does the church find itself being manipulated and used? Where does the church work creatively with its new possibilities? So that's the two-minute version. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Will, for this invitation. Uh, I'm going to try to do three things in my 10 minutes of uh, liberal time. Uh, first of all, I, I want to describe how I first came to CTI and to this interest in, in the Orthodox Church in Russia. Uh, I was working in the State Department, and I, I have to confess, and, and Robin, maybe you had an analogous experience at Harvard Divinity School, I was there studying more years than I care to recount, and I probably read 30 minutes worth of Orthodox theology over those multiple years, and, and that's an indictment on both religious studies in America but also graduate theological education. I come to the State Department, and suddenly I realize both in Ukraine and certainly in Russia, one cannot even begin to pretend to understand the political dynamics in either place and being willfully ignorant of the role of the Orthodox Church. I sent up a plea, a flare. I think it was originally to Robin to say, who do you know that can make me marginally less ignorant on, on the, the dynamics there? And then he graciously offered, in, in concert with Will, to, to do a, a full-day tutorial for me and one of my senior staffers on the role of, of religion, both in Ukraine and Russia. 
Now, at the same time, uh, the State Department is very concerned about the role of the Orthodox Church in both places, and there's a lot of analytical power, surprisingly. There actually are people in the, in the federal government who study this as their life's work. Uh, I can't say who they are, but their initials are CIA. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and they really, really a phenomenal group of scholars, but they're not with me every day. I can see them perhaps once a month. So the, the tutorial that, that you provided for me was just absolutely a Herculean leap in my understanding and started us thinking about a new set of issues with respect. But, but uh, the contrast I want to draw is I started thinking about Russia and the Orthodox Church really from a, a geopolitical perspective, and that's in direct contrast to, to as you described, your work there. Um, the main thing I want to communicate today is this is a phenomenal book. Uh, it, it's truly... As someone who's done archival research here only in the United States, to, to see what you have done across this vast country over 15 years is truly breathtaking in its erudition and the time and energy that is invested there. It, it really is an impressive, astonishing book. I can't think of any other member of that genre where a, a, theo, a Protestant theologian has gone and stud, learned a new language and studied, uh, as you call it, frankly, orthodoxies, plural. Uh, and the, the antithesis is the book area, uh, wherever, whichever way the convention center is, is filled full of instant books where, where people, in response to a geopolitical issue, have stitched together two journal articles and maybe woven in three new chapters, and suddenly uh, a university press has an expert book on you, you name the place. This is not that. So, John, thank you. I mean, the... Uh, the, the portrait you have in terms of your thick description of what I would call popular piety, for lack of a better term, really, I think it's without peer. I've not seen anything like this. Uh, your description of, of the cultural travail in Russia post-Soviet uh, Union is also quite breathtaking. Uh, so thank you for your work. It, it, this will be a book I think that people study for a very, very long time, and my hope is that this genre begins to grow but it requires an investment of learning a new language in mid midlife and spending 15 years going uh, city to city, village to village. But it is, it's the kind of thick description, lived religion that many of us speak about, but frankly, very few of us have the ability to go and do. So thank you. Uh, I want to spend the balance of my time raising theological questions. Uh, and and these, are, these are not questions that are in any sense trick questions. Re I really do want to know what, what you feel about them. And they probably reflect my sort of low church Protestant bias. And I, I, will, I will confess that uh, up front. I, I, I think, first of all, the question for me, does Putin pursue what Karl Barth called an eternal covenant with the Russian Orthodox Church? And is the converse true? Is Patriarch Kirill and his attendant leaders, are they seeking something analogous to an eternal covenant? And I think I sense tension in your analysis that sometimes you do seem to think in both directions that's happening, but at other times you seem to say, well, maybe not. And so I'm really... I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit um, on that. Uh, secondly, is, does Orthodox theology itself have the resources to sort that relationship? Uh, I was recently in New York City at, at Fordham on a panel uh, at their study uh, of Orthodoxy there, and, and this came up, that, that historically the Orthodox Church has often seen the national church as the uh, most optimal unit. Uh, now, obviously, in the United States, it, it's very different. And the Orthodox Church struggles, I think, with how to, to structure themselves ecclesiastically. 
But in a place like Russia, does are there theological resources within the Russian Orthodox Church itself to provide what I would call a, a prophetic critique? So in other words, is there potential for critical distance between the government on the one hand and uh, the church on the other? And what might that look like? Uh, is you uh, document in great depth the, the attempt to recover piety, to recover uniquely Russian and Orthodox forms of formation and training, is there a vector into that to create some prophetic, political, theological independence so that the Russian Orthodox Church might someday actually be a, a, a critical, in a, the most positive sense of that word, entity that might actually provide some civil, even political uh, dividends as, as Russia tries to, to continue to survive and, and even prosper? How then, too, does the narrative of decadent Western values or traditional values rhetoric hurt or help in that process? Because it seems to me this might be the theological bridge that cements the government with the Russian Orthodox Church in the sense that you see speeches Putin gives invoking decadent West and uh, asserting the need for a recovery of traditional values and you also see similar rhetoric coming from the senior leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. It seems to me theologically that might be a block against any emerging prophetic uh, line of, uh, of theologizing. And let me add a footnote here. There, there is a deep tome that you indicate of, of restorationism, if you will, for lack of a better term, where you're, they're trying to restore a greater Russia. And is it the case theologically, and we, we can argue about this offline perhaps, are Christian attempts to restore some golden age by definition inherently problematic in the current age? Now, I say that having been raised in uh, a sectarian Protestant restorationist environment. So I, I, knew, I know what some of those pathologies are like, and I'm always skeptical, no matter where I see it in Christian theology, of people embracing a, restore, a restoration of a golden age in the contemporary disordered age. And so I'm wondering uh, what, what you think about that. The last question I want to raise, which I don't, as I recall, I, 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 you know, I read this in manuscript, and I think you edited it a bit in, in, in the final version, particularly your last chapter, which was, I think, very, very well done, where you captured the nuances of the, the tensions. Um, but I'm wondering if you, in writing the book or even since, if you've picked up on c connections between the Russian Orthodox Church and U.S. evangelical entities. Uh, I've recently become aware of homeschooling seminars that are being held in Russia uh, with American fundamentalist Protestant groups showing up, sharing best practices and lessons learned about how homeschooling does in fact help teach and restore traditional values. I've also been led to believe that Franklin Graham, who is something of a bridge figure here, may be receiving Russian Orthodox or Russian government money into Samaritan's Purse. So I'm just curious if, if you've seen any commerce there between sort of the traditional values, Christians, if you will, in the U.S. and those uh, folks in the Russian Orthodox Church. But in conclusion, again, I, 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 whatever you say in terms of my questions, this really is an extraordinary uh, portrait the time, the empathy, but also the critical distance you've managed to preserve in that uh, is really phenomenal, and, and we're all in your debt. So thank you very much, John. Thanks, Sean. <clears throat> I think we're going to actually get you to respond now, John, if you're willing, to come briefly to the podium so we don't lose those questions and give full time to, to Kathy and Hans Martin as well. Thank you very much, Sean. Well, great questions.
questions, Sean, really perceptive and uh, go right to the, the heart of this very com complicated relationship between church and state, between Patriarch Kirill and uh, President Putin. Um, I think it helps to put all of this into a little bit of historical perspective. So 1917, exactly 100 years ago, the October Revolution takes place. And that was a revolution dedicated to creating a entirely new identity, a utopian identity for the Soviet, what would become the Soviet Union, the Soviet people. Uh, to create that new utopian identity required eradicating the old identities, the monarchy, the uh, nobility, the landowners, and the church. On the verge, on the edge of the revolution, Russia was in some vague way an orthodox culture. We can argue about how deep that went and exactly how it was being expressed, but just as you can say that the United States evolved as a Protestant culture, Russia was an orthodox culture. And that immediately comes under attack, and brutally so. One thing I review in the book is just uh, what happened in the first 25 years after the revolution, so that in 1917 there were 50,000 parishes of the Russian Orthodox Church. By 1941, 200 remained open. As many as 300,000 people were martyred for their faith. Every monastery was closed. Every theological school was closed by 1941. So, you have this, this chaos, this, this dream on the one hand of a utopia, this violence, this terrorism on the other side. Well, then comes 1941, and we have an invasion from uh, the West, Hitler, the, the fascists. Uh, that relieved the pressure on religion to some extent, but it created a new cultural chaos and then followed by the so-called years of stagnation, but also under Khrushchev, new, new forms of repression of religion. We get to 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, and finally freedom and democracy, except that didn't turn out so well in the 1990s in Russia. The Soviet Union fell apart. It was no longer the Soviet Union, but Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, the Central Asian Republics. It was a time in which many uh, Russians suffered from uh, poverty. The, the, the ruble uh, collapsed in 1998. It was virtually impossible to buy eggs and black tea and things as simple as that. So when the Orthodox Church began to revive its life, it felt and, and, and believed, and to some extent this has come true, that it could provide a narrative that gave Russians some sense of identity and pride after 75 years of identities being eradicated, reformed, confused in paradox and contradiction, that here was something Russians could finally be proud of, going back more than a thousand years. And I don't think that's entirely bad. I mean, I think it's maybe worse for people to feel humiliated than to have some sense of pride. So I'm sympathetic that the Orthodox Church 
could step into the breach and say there is something that makes Russia distinctive, unique, not just a junior partner to the West, and that's, that's orthodoxy. Now, the other side of that is the theological question that, that you begin to raise and is indeed a very, uh, as I hinted at the end of, of my uh, remarks, what, what is the price that gets paid? And arguably, it's, it's a, a severe price theologically because at least my understanding of Christian theology is that the, the gospel is not primarily about propping up nationhood and nation, national pride. It has something to do with a cross, and it has something to do with self-denial, and it has something to do with uh, suffering with the needy and the marginalized. So uh, this is where this, on the one hand, I understand, I'm somewhat sympathetic, a people needs to have a sense of national pride, all the better that religion can help to provide that, but then on the other side, this deep concern that that becomes a kind of heresy without regard to the cross, kind of Christian triumphalism. Um, well, yes, there are parallels you can draw to the experience of some evangelicals in the United States. Uh, and in fact, there's going to be a session on this tomorrow afternoon in the Eastern Orthodoxy group and come back because I'm one of the panelists there and we'll <laughs> talk about uh, Franklin Graham and so on. Uh, but uh, again, I find myself sort of divided in my, my sympathies or sentiments as a theologian because Well, I, I do think that, that Christian values should matter for a society. And we can argue about what those traditional values are, but they're not all bad. I mean, it's not all bad to have traditional values that say honesty and working hard and caring for the needy. And, you know, there are lots of things that are bound up in traditional values uh, that are not just uh, repressive. But... It all depends on how that gets interpreted and how that gets instrumentalized politically. So my final point, does the Orthodox Church have resources for becoming a prophetic voice? Well, you know, in 16th century Geneva, one would have asked, do Calvinists have the theological resources to be a prophetic voice? Because we have a, our own tradition of very close cooperation between church and state. After all, in Geneva, John Calvin expected the state to enforce both tables of the Decalogue, not just the second half, but you know, against heresy, against idolatry. So this is, uh, we should at least be a little sympathetic that we had to go through some growing pains to get to a different place. And I think this will be true of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, does it have resources? Well, I think it does. And this is the reason that I think it does. It's because it's a church that had martyrs. It had thousands of martyrs during the Soviet era, people who said that the values of the church are not the values of the state, that the values of Christianity and the gospel can lead one to lay down everything for the truth rather than to submit to the governing authorities. Now, that's a longer story about, as you know in my chapter, how the the cult of the martyrs gets used, but it's to say that one of my underlying themes in the book is that religious symbols can always roar back 
and take you by surprise. The politician thinks that he has co-opted them, but religious symbols awaken new desires, new visions, new hopes. And I think this is no less true of orthodoxy than other forms of religion. Our goal at the Center of Theological Inquiry is to have not only theologians and religion scholars of various stripes and residents, but also scholars in the cognate disciplines we're in dialogue with. And thanks to a very generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation, we were able to fund a three-year program with scientists and legal scholars in residence at the center. And one of them was Hans Martin Tennappel, who worked very hard on this book, uh, which he will introduce now. Please welcome him. Thank you, and I would also like to thank CTI for convening this panel this afternoon and um, for um, the inquiry that I had the privilege of being a part of uh, two or three years ago. Um, I think I can briefly introduce um, my book with the help of the title uh, Constitutionalism, Democracy and Religious Freedom to be fully human. And um, one thing that needs to be said then is that um, in the original book proposal that I wrote while at CTI, um, the subtitle was actually the main title. So my proposal was to be fully human, to have the book being entitled to be fully human, Constitutionalism, Democracy and Religious Freedom. Now, the publisher um, did not think that that was a very good idea because and I think that's fair. They said, well, nobody will understand what the book is about if you make that the main title. And again, that's fair. Um, but it says something about uh, the approach I take in the book. Uh, and that is to sort of put anthropology first and to start with the question um, what it means to be fully human before getting to the question um, how to look at uh, the right to religious freedom. Now, I do this in a very simple way. Um, I use, basically use one quote by one Christian ethicist um, who says that um, uh, it's important that there is room for everyone um, to be fully human in the public and private spheres, and that to be fully human means to cradle the spirituality of one's religion and to build one's life on the foundation that the religion offers. Now, you can, could expand that, you could elaborate on that, but um, the main thing is that I believe inspired by the inquiry that I've been a part of with ethicists, with theologians, that it is important also in constitutional law to um, ask the question about anthropology first. And when you do that, um, that may lead to a particular stance with regard to uh, religious freedom. You can take different stances with respect to religious freedom. 
But if you take this notion of what it means to be fully human and then look at what the right to religious freedom could mean, um, in my book I come to the conclusion that um, religious freedom um, almost becomes a natural right. Um, that is um, a right which precedes the state. Uh, it's such an essential part of being human uh, to be able to express oneself, to build one's life on the foundation of one's religion or other belief for that matter, um, that um, the right to religious freedom almost deserves to be seen as um, a right preceding the state, uh, a natural right um, that uh, the state will have to um, respect um, and also that the state basically can act only legitimately uh, when it honors this right. And then the next question for me as a constitutional lawyer is, what does this stance regarding religious freedom then imply for constitutionalism and democracy, the two main concepts of my uh, discipline? And um, one of the things I'm, I have discovered and I'm still in the process of um, um, thinking through, is that uh, this idea, that putting anthropology first and then um, looking at religious freedom as a natural right leads to um, a distinctive um, notion of constitutionalism in that um, the independence of the church from the state, from secular control, um, becomes a very, very important. And um, it also leads to, it can lead to a distinctive um, view on democracy in that um, not um, the idea of public reason and civility um, is lies at the heart of liberal democracy, as John Rawls um, uh, has proposed, um, but rather um, um, what has been called an equal right to full political voice, to be exercised within constitutional limits, to be sure, but full political voice for all um, religions and other beliefs for all different worldviews. Um, why is this distinctive? Um, few final words. Um, I think that um, currently um, a different stance towards religious freedom is uh, becoming um, dominant instead of the idea of religious freedom as a, a natural right. Um, 
that idea of religious freedom as a natural right could be called a liberal stance towards re religious freedom. Um, and what we are witnessing today is rather a modern view of religious um, freedom that still wants to protect religious freedom, um, but um, um, uh, not from uh, starting from the idea that there is such a thing as religious uh, truth. That idea is being abandoned. So it is no longer a natural right, but it's becoming a positive right, meaning that the state is actually granting that right in the first place and can then limit that right or even withdraw that right if necessary. And that's, I think, a major change, um, which also leads to a different view of liberal democracy. And I would summarize the difference uh, by saying that um, if you start with anthropology and then um, think about what that implies for religious freedom and then for liberal democracy, then liberal democracy becomes uh, a means of achieving the aim of becoming fully human. Whereas in the modern view, where religious freedom is a positive right, the risk is that liberal democracy um, becomes um, the aim in itself, um, and that humans, we, um, will only be allowed to become human uh, and to express our religious freedom to the extent that liberal democracy uh, permits that. Thank you. invite Kathy Kameny to respond. Thank you. Well, I am delighted to be here. I'd like to thank Will and my friends at the center uh, at the CTI for um, organizing a wonderful event. And I'm particularly grateful to Professor Ted Napel for writing uh, what is an extraordinarily rich and dense book, which has the benefit of combining uh, not only reflection on a theoretical level, but also um, some concrete reflections on some specific cases that have arisen uh, regarding uh, the scope to which religious freedom is, um, is protected. And, and so what I would like to do in terms of engaging this book in 10 minutes is actually switch hats a little bit, speaking a little bit as a theologian and then as a lawyer and then as a theologian again, kind of a sandwich. Though I have to say, when I get up there and I heard we've got astrobiology and law, I thought we were going to have, you know, Mr. Spock come in and it'd be a trial in the United Federation of Planets. But alas, I see no Vulcans among you. As far as you know. As far as we know. No, yeah, check the ears here. Um, so as, as, as Professor Tenapol summarized his book on the theoretical level, I just want to focus in on a couple of points that are relevant for you know, the direction, the more practical direction I would like to take this. Um, as he noted, he is very convinced of and noting the idea that human beings are called to be fully human in our era in a context of a pluralistic de democracy where we've got many different sets of religious beliefs. And for that reason, he argues, we need to prioritize religious freedom. Um, we also need, he says, to 
incorporate our priority of religious freedom into our constitutional structures. And here, I think, is, is a bit of a unique thing, a unique proposal, at least to American ears. He would like to have what he calls a social pluralist constitutional structure. He says, it's great we've got in the United States a separation of powers. We've got the judiciary, we've got the legislative branch, we've got the executive branch. But that is not enough in a pluralistic democracy. What we need also is the separation of powers of the various constituencies, the various mediating structures that compose the society so that, say, perhaps churches or other voluntary organizations have a type of autonomy and even from time to time use the word sovereignty vis-a-vis the government. So, um, and, and it's that kind of social pluralist view of constitutional law that generates the very high protection he would like to give to religious freedom. What I would like to do is to call, um, you know, to focus our discussion on three sets of questions which uh, all begin uh, with the letter D for some reason. I don't know why, but they do. It's not that the book was a D. It's the book is an A. The book is an A, but I'm talking about some Ds. The first is definitions. Um, Speaking as an American lawyer and as a theologian, one of the things I've noticed most about the law and the lawyers who do First Amendment law is that they're entirely uninterested, not to put too fine a point on it, (laughs) on how scholars of religious studies might define religion in the first place. And secondly, um, with how theologians within particular religious traditions would approach certain questions. Um, I don't know if it's the socialization of law school or, or something else, but they proceed at a very abstract level that I think needs to be interrogated when we talk about religion. So here are some impressions I have of the definitions you used um, in the book. Uh, You talk about religion and religious as if it's in contrast to, as if it's set off against functionally the notion of secularity, as if there's a a pristine understanding almost of religious belief on the one hand and, and almost a pristine understanding of secularity or enlightenment modernity on the other and that they are facing each other if not across a battlefield, at least across a negotiating table. Um, As a theologian, I'd like to problematize that understanding of the relationship of religion to philosophy more generally and the relationship of religion to secular modernity more specifically. From the very beginning, at least, Christianity was a borrower. We borrowed from, you know, Jewish thought, Jewish law, Roman law, Greek philosophy, the creed are framed in that particular context. And that kind of borrowing from philosophy to some degree or another has continued throughout the West. Um, most in drawing on my own tradition, the Roman Catholic thought, Dignitatis Humanae, is picking up on secular liberal notions of religious freedom in order to articulate what's a very high-level doctrine now within the church. Uh, to move back a century, um, if you read Mark Knowles' a 
book on religion and the Civil War, you see the degree to which um, you know, um, fundamentalist or evangelical Protestants struggled to make room for an idea that slavery was not only moral but gravely immoral, which was coming, they interpreted it from the outside and was inconsistent with the scripture. So I think setting up religion and, um, and secularity in this way of life creates um, a bit of, of, of difficulty conceptually. It also creates a bit of a difficulty with respect to real life. You know, you, the numbers, at least in the United States, many, many people are religious. Very few people are religious in the way the Amish are religious, which means a total sectarian you know, life set apart from the rest of the community. Most people move in and out of various spheres of life where they're, you know, they're in the banking sphere in the daytime, you know, their their morals in some sense are governed by their, um, you know, their total worldview, but that worldview is informed by norms from all sorts of areas. So, definition of religion, definition of secular, and also definition of sovereignty. I got a little nervous, I have to say, when you started talking about, you know, these institutions, these, you know, uh, mediating institutions having some sort of sovereignty. Because when I think of sovereignty, I think of a power to enforce a law of its own. I don't think of just independence from, uh, from other people's law. I think of an actual power to determine and make law for its members. That brings me to my second D, domination. I, I, uh, I, I think what you did in terms of understanding religion is extraordinarily rich, but I wish you had understood the way religious belief and religious institutions interplay and interface with other types of power moves, other types of concerns in the context of of, of, of at least American life. I can't say how it works in the Netherlands. But you talked about the Hobby Lobby case, for example. And for those of you who don't remember Hobby Lobby, Hobby Lobby was a, is, is a, pri a private corporation, although a very big corporation, owned by a group of um, evangelical Christians who do not believe that they should be providing a certain type of what they believe, it's not clear if it's necessarily true, is an abortifacent contraception to its employees. Now, so you could talk about associational pluralism in that way, but the bigger picture, I think, requires you to talk about not just the government making Hobby Lobby do something, but Hobby Lobby as an employer whose relationship to its employees um, is one of um, you know not running their entire life or creating a total community, but actually um, you know providing them uh, remuneration in exchange for services provided. Employers exercise a tremendous amount of influence on the lives of their employees. Many people just can't pick up and change jobs. So how do you weigh the religious freedom, say, of the employees of Hobby Lobby, um, who may, according to their own religious beliefs, think contraception is not just something that's um, you know, um, morally permissible, but may even in their own context be something that they believe is morally required for them to do out of stewardship for them and their family. I began to worry, and I worry about this in the legal context, that religion means religiously conservative, and in fact, the most religiously conservative way you can go. But that's not actually 
the case. Um, there are many religious traditions that are not conservative on some of these issues, um, even very traditional ones, say Islam and Judaism, for example. Um, so that's domination. The third D I'd like to raise a question about is duty. What I find as a theologian that's missing from our entire debate about religious freedom, at least in the United States, is the question of what do I owe my neighbor? We, the debate structured by lawyers is what am I due from the government? What religious freedom needs to be protected from me and mine? But I have not seen the question turned around from a theological perspective and say, I am a Christian employer, but not everybody I am working for has my brand of Christianity. Not everybody who I am employing has my brand of Christianity. What do I owe people who themselves have religious beliefs that are different from mine, given my role-related relationship to them? So I would like to see the, the notion of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, helps structure our religious liberty debate from a theological side. And from a philosophical side, I'd like to see a little bit drawing on another aspect of John Rawls, not so much his notion of public reason, but his notion of civic friendship. What kind of respect do we need not only to claim, but also to give if we're going to be in a situation of civic friendship? There you go. Thanks. Hans Martin, maybe from where you're sitting, a brief response to at least one or two of these Ds uh, from Kathy. And then we'll open it up. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> um, for reading the book and for um, being willing to uh, comment on the book uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's really uh, an honor. Um, a social pluralist uh, constitution um, I don't think uh, Americans would have to worry too much about this this idea this this proposal um, because as uh, as I see it and as uh, for example uh, Michael Paulson uh, sees it um, uh, professor of constitutional interpretation I yeah uh, whose uh, work I, I use in my uh, my, my book um, uh, it's 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 just the liberal stance towards religious freedom that um, uh, that um, I am sort of uh, defending and uh, that liberal idea um, perhaps today one ought to say classical liberal idea or conservative liberal idea and that is because what we are currently used to calling liberal um, is goes in part in, in, a, in, in a slightly different direction. But uh, I think there, there is reason to reclaim uh, that word uh, liberal, so to say, and to say, look, this, 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 this was the original idea behind, uh, also behind the US uh, Constitution, uh, that, um, that, that religious freedom is a natural right. That's, um, 
and, and a right which precedes um, uh, the state. And um, that is, as Paulson writes, uh, because the idea was at the time that God exists and has a prior and always superior claim on human loyalty. So the idea was, and still is, I think, in, in this liberal stance towards religious freedom, that there is such a thing as religious truth. And, um, and so, so I come to that stance uh, from a social pluralist um, uh, sort of background perspective. And I'm open about that. Uh, that's another thing I learned at CTI, um, that you have to reflect uh, on uh, why you favor a particular position with respect to, to, to... Why is it? If there are at least four stances that Paulson distinguishes, why am I in favor of what he calls, and I agree with that, what he calls the liberal position. Why is that? Well, in my case, that comes from this social pluralist perspective, uh, from, from a broadly um, uh, Christian uh, perspective. But you can get to that liberal position from other perspectives as well, fortunately, I would say. And um, what, what I am in, in favor of, uh, and actually arguing in my book, is that um, we should be more open about our different perspectives um, also in academia. So, so uh, just as I'm not in favor of the idea of public reason, as, as John Rawls wants it in, in, in public and political debate, I would also want to open up academic debate um, because what I notice is that sometimes colleagues of mine take positions without making explicit um, the anthropology they are uh, applying. But, but they do. They, they are just not open about it. And, and so um, in my case, that's, uh, that's a social pluralist um, perspective. But it leads to what I would say, the liberal position. And that liberal position includes a very generous um, uh, attitude, so to say, towards civil society organizations. Because, maybe give Kathy a brief response to that yeah. point, and then we'll... Why, why don't we just open it up? You're happy to open it up. Let's open it up now. Anyone want to come back to either <coughs> author um, and, and respond on any point, these two books? Oh, Kathy, yeah. the floor is yours. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I guess the question is, how do you move from the level of generality to the level of the concrete? Maybe yep. that's <laughs> the thing. Yep. That's one problem. The, uh, the, the second problem is that in the American context, the way the debate has been framed, I think, is undermining the well-being of religious freedom in the long haul by pitting anybody who opposes the extension, say. Let me, let me give you just an example of how the absurdity. So the Little Sisters of the Poor, the case on that, uh, were 
asked in the very end to sign a form that said they opposed contraception. And that's all they had to do. They, they just had to sign it. Now, there was some debate about whether they had to send it to the government or the third-party payer, but they just had to sign a form saying, I don't like contraception. And they said that that was an impermissible burden on their religious freedom. Now, I think that when you get to the level of that and the litigators who were putting this forward, you know, as a way of defending religious freedom, we're not open to Catholic theological traditions which said, no, this is remote material cooperation with evil. You don't even have scandal because you're saying, no, we don't right. like it. There's no scandal. Um, <laughs> And uh, that this very much seemed to be a way of pursuing a social agenda that they had lost. One of the other problems with religious liberty as it's focused here is that if you ask some of these conservatives, you know, somebody like Mike Stokes Paulson, I know him very, very well, if you say to them, well, if, if you win, can we outlaw abortion and, you know, possibly abortifacient contraception? Well, of course we can, because the, this violates the rights of independent people, um, you know, the, the unborn. But, um, but at the same, so you don't get any religious freedom rights if we win, but when, when we're in the minority, we get to organize our whole lives as if you weren't in the majority. So the way religious freedom is put forward and defended in the United States, I think in the end, is going to contribute to the undermining of it. And unfortunately, people like Mike Stokes Paulson um, and Rick Garnett are at the center of that. Uh, uh, the center of that way of framing religious freedom, which is verges very close on a heads I win, tail you lose mentality. Big issues here, and much for post-session uh, conversation. I'm going to invite Robin to give a closing brief reflection on how these two books and these two conversations reflect part of what we were doing two years ago at CDI. Robin, thank you. Good luck, Robin. Now <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want the Vulcan to come in, huh? It was, it was quite a year, <laughs> as, as you can imagine. Uh, but I think this, you know, this does show the kind of conversations that go on at, at CTI. Oftentimes, these are pivotal years for the scholars who are involved. Uh, John exemplifies that as, as well as anyone. He'd spent years pulling this work together, and it finally gave him the opportunity to, to uh, formulate those, those reflections. Those scholars bring experiences of global changes that are uh, are going on and change and, and change each other's perceptions of what the world is like and and what the problems are. One of the important things about occasionally having a discussion of religion and law in a theological context. Apropos uh, what Kathy was saying about definition, is that most of our th thinking about religion and law is done by lawyers, which means that it happens in the context of a particular legal system. 
uh, or maybe international law then, global human rights, but, uh, but the, the anthropology that we were talking about is largely missing in those legal discussions. So I think what happened in our year together uh, was that we complicated these questions about religious freedom with that kind of anthropological uh, data. And if you think that what you heard here, you know, gave you a set of complex realities, you know, say Western European and American constitutional democracy and Russia after the fall of communism, imagine then that you had in the conversation other people who were expert on Islam, people who were expert on Eastern Europe, which is not entirely Russia, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and our first uh, mainland Chinese scholar who was part of the conversation for an entire year. One of the things I learned in that year is nothing I know about religion and society helps me understand what's going on in China <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and for those of us who are concerned about uh, that set of questions, uh, that, was, that was an extremely uh, valuable experience and, and one that I hope CTI will be able to to replicate in the, in the future. So it was a different angle of vision on the problem of religious freedom, one that was global and culturally pluralistic, so that descriptively it was very different. But in the end, it also raises different questions about the meaning of religious freedom. Because it turns out that there simply is no universal definition of religious freedom that can be applied to all societies. It's going to look different in Russia. It's going to look different. John and I have done Ukraine as well. It's going to look different in Ukraine than it does in Russia. It's going to look different in Western Europe and the United States that develop constitutional democracies from those places. It's going to look different in societies that are deeply pluralistic in terms of their religious and cultural background versus those that are more homogeneous. Religious freedom for a Muslim is not going to be the same thing in France that it is in Saudi Arabia. So, so uh, we, uh, I think we were able to raise a whole set of questions that will give the participants in that year, and I include among the participants people like Sean and Kathy who will, who will be out uh, uh, doing their own work out of those those discussions, a, a whole new set of questions that the changing global reality is raising for those of us who are concerned about law and religious freedom. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. Can we thank especially 
our five participants who have enriched our thinking this afternoon.